The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon, and welcome to Barron's Live Market Watch Edition. My name is Steve Jelsey. I'm senior banking reporter for Market Watch, and I'm your host for today. On today's episode, we're joined by Bruce Von Son, CEO of Citizens Bank. Welcome, Bruce. Hi, Steve. Well, Bruce, you're the CEO of the 12th largest bank in the U.S. by total assets with $222 billion as of March 31st, or the 17th largest when including trust banks. You're a large regional bank with national online presence that's been swept up in the first real bank sector turbulence since the global financial crisis of 2008. Your stock price is down about 27% this year amid, amid a big sell-off in regional banks. Uh, we've got the KBW Bank Index down about almost 20% this year, and PacWest, a really hard-hit stock, is down 60%. Uh, so, so, Bruce, what happened? Well, I'd say the, the year certainly uh, has turned out differently than we thought uh, going into the year. And, uh, you know, initially, uh, I think, Folks felt that the Fed would bring inflation under control, and uh, it appears that uh, they actually were a bit more behind the curve and had to keep pushing rates higher. So that uh, had an impact on banks' funding costs. And then you had those idiosyncratic bank failures in in March and then First Republic about a month later, uh, which also, I think, uh, made investors a bit skittish about uh, their investments in regional banks and uh, uh, do the, does the business model still work? Uh, are the higher rates really going to crimp profitability if we go into a recession? Is there going to be higher credit costs? Uh, the usual. And then I think importantly, also, there was fear about what's the regulatory response going to be? Because uh, when you have problems, usually the regulators knee jerk reaction uh, is we need more regulation. And so I think investors are wondering when those cards turn over. Uh, how how painful is that going to be for the bank sector? So it's a little bit of everything that's uh, kind of gone into the, the lack of interest right now in, uh, in, in banks and owning banks, particularly regional banks. But uh, having said that, I would compare and contrast that uh, traditional regional banks uh, have well-diversified business models. They have strong management teams. They've weathered the storm reasonably well. Uh, and we'll get through this and uh, still have a bright future. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the stock prices have calmed down a little bit, and we have some seen seen some signs of strength in, in, in the corporate bond market for banks. We'll get to that in a minute. But the, I guess the question on everyone's mind is, is it over? You know, the dominoes, you know, have, a few of the dominoes have fallen, and maybe like there might be another domino falling. Uh, so there was some contagion there after Silicon Valley Bank, uh, the Cosarana deposits and other banks. Uh, so and we also have the FDIC's quarterly report on banks last week. It said the more lasting effects of the industry's response to financial stress in the system is not yet apparent, at least until second quarter results come out. So is it over for, for Citizens Financial Group, ticker CFG? Yeah, so I would say, uh, you know, the, the, the market overall has calmed down dramatically uh, from the period when we had the bank failures. And so uh, deposit behavior has gone pretty much back to normal. Uh, we're still uh, competing for deposits and 
paying up for 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 rates uh, uh, to make sure you keep your your, your deposits uh, stable. Uh, so you know, but it feels a lot better certainly than it did a month or two ago. Uh, and I'd say, you know, the second quarter when the FDIC report references that uh, we haven't seen the full effect of the higher rates that were paid towards the end of March and then into the first part of the second quarter when there was more turmoil, uh, you should see kind of lower net interest margins uh, in the second quarter report cards. And everybody's pretty much guided to that. I think that's baked into estimate right now. But my guess is once you get past the second quarter, you should start to see things flatten out and the interest margins are stabilized more um, over the second half of the year. So it'll be another important earnings season. It was uh, for first quarter earnings. I think it turned out better than feared. Uh, and so we'll see how things go with uh, uh, when the cards get turned over here in the second quarter. But I would expect most banks have uh, started to stabilize and it's probably a lower likelihood that we'll see any more significant from here. Okay, well, bring us. I'd like to kind of get maybe a behind the scenes look. You know, now that it's kind of um, stabilizing a little bit, uh, bring us back to the to the weeks in March and April. I guess were, were bank CEOs talking behind the scenes? Uh, what were they saying? Uh, and what did you think of the effort to shore up First Republic Bank with thirty billion dollars in deposits, which turned out to be less than the bank probably needed to cover withdrawals? But like, what was going on behind the scenes? I guess you guys must have been very surprised because everything unfolded very quickly. Yeah, it did happen very quickly. And I think the first order of business was to make sure your funding was secure. So that's why, you know, banks uh, started to pay up a bit more for deposits. Initially, uh, we were letting uh, deposits run down a bit because of quantitative tightening and weren't fighting the tape. But then it became a badge to show that, oh, my deposits are stable. It's, it's like we don't have an existential threat at this bank. And so that's kind of what you saw is the behavior. I do think uh, to calm the anxiety in the markets, there was an effort led by Jamie Dimon to uh, try to prop up uh, First Republic for a period. Of, uh, you know, different alternatives for First Republic's future could be, uh, you know, worked through. Uh, as it turns out, they had such big uh, interest rate losses on their uh, long-dated mortgages that. Uh, if you mark that to market, they'd have negative tangible equity and their profitability had been obliterated as their cost of funds went up and their mortgages were making the same low yield. It wasn't a profitable equation anymore for that bank. So I do think the 30 billion just helped stabilize for you know a six week period. So uh, folks could take a look at it. Can there be an open bank transaction here where somebody can take it over? Because of those marks, that really wasn't the case. So the FDIC had to move in uh, and conduct an auction process uh, of First Republic and deem it to be a failed bank. Uh, and then, you know, that seemed to be the last big one. And that rescue would have, we thought initially that that would encourage the market that, okay, so we got this one and it's been a, been a good bank and it's in safe hands with JP Morgan. Uh, and so now the market should be calm, but was was interesting, it kind of inflamed the market again. So there was another seven or 10 day period of turmoil. And then uh, I think, you know, some of the other banks that the market was watching started to take some actions like PacWest uh, cut their dividend and they sold off a portfolio and they sold off a business. And so 
those banks are focused on capital strength and the markets responded well to that. So I think, again, we're back in calmer waters, but uh, it's been a little bit episodic. Uh, through March and April, and you are probably talking to your, um, you know, to your account holders as well. I guess you're you're sort of, uh, you know, reinforcing the strength of your balance sheet and, and, and whatnot. I would think, right? Yeah. So that's, uh, you know, the the numbers speak for themselves. So we had uh, the second highest uh, capital ratio amongst our peer group, uh, and we had even after you had deducted those mark to market losses on your bonds, we still had the second highest in the peer group. And we had 67% of our deposits were consumer deposits, 68% were insured uh, collateralized deposits. And so we had really good stats. So that's kind of, you can let the numbers speak for themselves. And our stock price performance initially was much better than people who didn't have as good as statistics. And you kind of walk a fine line because you'd like to call your uh, big accounts and say, you don't have to worry about us, we're fine. But they weren't even thinking that you might not be fine. So by actually calling them, they say, well, wait a minute, should I be worried that you're even calling me? So uh, I think we tried to do that more on a reactive basis. Right, right. That makes sense. Um, so the, one of the things that really struck me about this a whole situation is, is all the different types of risks that have to be managed by CEOs and by banks. I mean, th th as a CEO of the company, your job is to focus on, one of your main jobs is to focus on risk, risks to the stock price, risks to the financial health of the company. Um, so banks face all kinds of risks and they, and they manage them. You know, if, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you issue a loan, there's always a risk that loan could, be def could, could, could default. So you get collateral. So you, you manage the risk that way. But, the, but the, what I heard a lot about this, this past few months is duration risk. And that, that's not a really prominent risk that banks deal with, but that's the risk of your portfolio not being in line with, with what interest rates are paying. Um, that was kind of a risk that rose unexpectedly this year. So, um, yeah, so I guess the question is, um, you know, this in turn put the spotlight on other banks for similar exposures to their asset base. So everybody looked at Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic Bank and their assets and their and their duration risk, and then they, they, they revalued the portfolio of other, other, of other banks. And they said, oh my God, these guys are underwater too. Their stock prices should be like X amount lower. So kind of just walk us through that idea of duration risk and how banks deal with that. Well, there's an asset liability framework that banks have to follow to manage the interest rate risk on their balance sheet uh, and the interest rate risk on their value of their equity. Um, and, you know, banks that are traditional, well-run banks like ourselves, uh, uh, do that quite well. And so you're constantly calibrating uh, where do I want my length of my assets to be and what's the composition of my deposit base. And if I have a more stable granular deposit base, I can take a little more uh, duration on the asset side of my, of my balance sheet. And I'm also always calibrating that to what the forward curve is, where interest rates are going to go. And you run a bunch of different scenarios. I think the problem with these other banks is, uh, you know, they had taken in a lot of uninsured deposits, which are effectively hot money. They don't have to stick around and they have to be paid market rates. And then they took that and they invested it in long dated assets. So initially the, the spread worked fine. They, they were investing in kind of 2% treasuries or 2.5% mortgages, and their cost of funds was maybe 50 basis points, so they had a nice little spread going. When the Fed moved very aggressively to raise rates, then all of a sudden those long-dated assets are still making the same yield, 
and you went from a 2% asset yield positive to cost of funds, all of a sudden you're upside down and you're paying 4.5% on your cost of funds. All of a sudden you have declining profitability. You're losing money kind of off your balance sheet. So that's what happened. But traditional banks, you know, you know A, they, they have a more granular deposit base. They didn't take in all that hot money. So the money's sticking around. So you're not forced to ever have to go realize those losses and sell uh, your uh, underwater assets to meet deposit withdrawals. And so it's kind of all part of a framework that uh, experienced banks with experienced teams are able to manage well. It was funny because like Silicon Valley Bank, I mean, they were they did take in a lot hot, a lot of hot money. But during the good times, that was a good thing. But then once, as Warren Buffett says, when the water goes out, you see who's not wearing any any bathing right. suits. So swimming naked. Exactly. Yeah. So um, so bank balance sheets have been in the spotlight. Uh, in the case of citizens, you have roughly four billion dollars in corporate debt coming due in the next one to three years. I guess you guys took on a little bit of debt because you did some acquisitions. Uh, we have seen some encouraging signs from the corporate bond market of late with uh, debt deals from Truist Financial, Capital One, uh, PNC, and U.S. Bancorp. Uh, what's your outlook for these debt maturities that, that Citizen, Citizens uh, Citizens Bank has? Yeah, Steve, we're, we're constantly laddering our port debt portfolio, our borrowings, so that we never hit a crescendo of a bunch of maturities coming due at the same time. So, you know, as those maturities uh, come due, we'll, we'll typically go into the market and reissue, and we can be a little bit opportunistic around the time of the maturity. If conditions are a little more favorable ahead of that, we can go out and issue. Uh, during the, the turbulent period, bank spreads on their debt blew out, and so you didn't really want to issue and have to lock in that kind of higher price on a multi-year uh, borrowing. Uh, but uh, more recently, as things have calmed down, uh, the spreads have come back in. And so now you're seeing a number of banks, uh, the, the larger super regionals have all gone to market this year uh, and they've transacted at, at reasonable levels. So I think it's good to see that that market's opening up. Uh, you've also seen a bit of recovery in the stock prices. And so I think Investors generally are kind of starting to wade into the uh, bank landscape and get interested in finance. Right. So, yeah, I mean, you mentioned some of the conditions that banks are facing. We're coming into the second quarter now. Are there any numbers that you that you can share uh, at this point with, with how Citizens is doing? Any visibility into your second quarter right now? Um, and also, you know, banks are facing increased pressure on their net interest income. So what's that looking like, too? Yeah, so I, you know, we gave uh, updated guidance uh, with our first quarter earnings call in mid-April, uh, and uh, you know, I think we've uh, forecast that our funding costs are uh, going to be higher than we thought coming into the year. So net interest margin will drop in the second quarter, uh, but fees looked like they would uh, pick up a bit. We do a good job on expenses, and credit would hold in, and so that was kind of the guidance that we gave. Um, and, you know, I think the one thing that we've been very focused on is to uh, look at the stability of deposits. And are we actually to hold deposits stable or actually grow them a little bit uh, in this environment? And, and so I've been at two investor conferences recently, and I've said that our deposits are slightly up uh, uh, you know, through the end of May, uh, which is good. So 
uh, even though it's costing a bit more, uh, we're holding on to those deposits, which ultimately is the foundation block to making loans and growing the bank. Uh, so uh, that's been a real focus of ours here in the second quarter. Yeah, I think as the second quarter is really, I mean, it's really interesting that you're saying that because the second quarter is when when the um, is when a lot of the fear sort of really took hold, like in early April. Yeah. Uh, you know, because the the the, the bank, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, went 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 bust in March 10th, so that really wasn't much of the first quarter. So most of it happened in the second, you know, the beginning of the second quarter. And well, I, there, I got a, there was oh, there was some paying up uh, in those last three weeks of March, but yeah. you don't get that for a portion of the first quarter. You get the full impact of that in the second quarter, and then as I said, then First Republic went at the end of April, and it happened a little bit again. So I think you'll see across the landscape. Uh, most banks have a pretty material drop in their net interest margin in the second quarter. But then, as I said, that should stabilize uh, over the back half of the year. OK, yeah, just 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 some of the numbers that you reported in the first quarter results. I just wanted to mention that your deposits actually increased by about two billion dollars to one hundred and fifty five billion uh, from the from from the previous quarter. So that was that was that was a good you know showing for the first quarter anyway. Um, getting back to citizens and, and your growth. Um, you've grown in the New York City market uh, with your acquisition of HSBC branches and investors Bank Corp. How are those M&A deals uh, doing for you? Um, and uh, is further M&A on the back burner for now? Yeah. So, Steve, we couldn't be more excited about uh, the New York Metro uh, push that we have. Um, and uh, it starts with we've uh, done the systems conversions very, very well. So we've got uh, both uh, bank uh, businesses onto our core uh, platform. We did the investors conversions on uh, President's Weekend of this year. So all of the branches are now fully branded citizens uh, and the customers are able to access our full product set and get the benefit of our technology and customer experience. Uh, and uh, we have you know, retained uh, almost all the colleagues, the uh, they've come across from their predecessor institutions. They're really happy to be part of citizens. They're bleeding citizens green. And when that's the case, that translates to uh, the customers of the bank that they see uh, engaged, happy colleagues who are kind of more skilled now in providing advice. And so the net promoter scores that we're seeing uh, in the New York region have really moved up very quickly. So all that's good. Uh, we're gaining a lot of new customers. Uh, we're uh, able to do more for the existing customers that we picked up. Uh, and so we're quite excited about uh, the potential uh, to come into New York. It's not an easy market to, to compete in. It's, uh, it's a lot of, a lot of the, all the big players are there and it's expensive market to do business in, but uh, we kind of go toe to toe with all comers in big markets like Boston and Philly and we're successful. So we think over time we'll be just as successful in New York. Great. So I, I, so I kind of want you to put on your, your industry hat for a second, just to kind of explain something to me. Uh, you know, the banking business can be somewhat complicated and it's difficult under, to understand some numbers. So, um, so the FDIC sold the bulk of the former Silicon Valley Bank to First Citizens Bank shares. Uh, and then New York Community Bank Corp is buying Signature Bank and J.P. Morgan Chase is buying First Republic. Um, Citizens was a bidder on First Republic. Can you give us any color on the sales process? And then I have another uh, kind of a technical question after that. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, our, our view was that uh, 
you know, we would we we are positioned to play on these failed bank situations because uh, you know we have strong capital, strong management team. We have the systems chops to do the conversions, and the regulators kind of endorsed our participations uh, in these processes, which is which is quite positive. Uh, but uh, our view was we would go after things that fit our strategy and not just kind of the capital play of becoming the FDIC's workout agent, uh, which goes along with uh, uh, some of the, the, these transactions. Uh, so uh, with respect to Silicon Valley Bank that had a subset of their business was Boston Private and the wealth business, which as you know, Steve, from following us, we've been interested in scaling up our wealth business. For some yeah. Uh, so that was of interest. The whole thing wasn't of interest ultimately uh, the FDIC went with first citizens, not to be confused with citizens uh, out of North Carolina to take the whole thing. And it's easier for them to deal with kind of a one stop solution. Than oh, just to clarify, are you talking about Silicon? Did you guys bid for Silicon Valley Bank or, or First Republic? For a piece of it. Uh, okay, Silicon. Okay. Migrated into First Republic, which was principally a wealth play. And so we were looking at a bigger possible transactions in First Republic, but uh, in the end of the day, it was kind of the Davids going up against Goliath. Uh, yeah. there a few regionals, including us uh, and JPM uh, being Goliath, could actually have the sharper pencil and kind of win the bid at the end of the day. So uh, I think it was a good outcome. The FDIC ran a good process. Uh, it's just uh, it's just tough to beat JP when they when they want something. Uh, they uh, use their size and clout uh, to get it. But uh, in any case. Uh, yeah, it's uh, good for the system because it was the least cost bid uh, for for the uh, diff fund, which is basically people think it's it's the taxpayer who are paying for these losses. It's actually the other bank. So yeah, the living get assessed for the cost of the dead, uh, which is kind of uh, you know, and the, and the FDIC has an obligation to take the least cost bid. Uh, so that it has the least stress uh, on the deposit insurance fund. That's how I refer to the dip. It's the deposit insurance fund. Uh, and so, you know, I think clearly the JP bid was the best uh, in terms of being the least cost uh, uh, option. I, guess, I mean, yeah, yeah, the banks do have to pay back the FDIC, but I guess theoretically the banks might have to, tr you know, raise some of their fees to cover those payments on, on consumers. So maybe the consumers are remains to be seen whether we yeah. you know, can do that, find a way to, to offset that or whether it just kind of comes down to the bottom line and it and yeah. hits shareholders, hits the earnings. Okay. We got a question from, uh, from Max, a live question from listener Max uh, for Bruce, any concern regarding the citizens dividend? No, I think our uh, dividend is uh, rock solid and we've been in a, pattern of uh, consistently raising that dividend. Uh, and so uh, I'd like to uh, continue with that. So, uh, you know, we're kind of being a little cautious on our share repurchase plan right now, but we have the luxury of having such a strong capital ratio that we can sustain the dividend, uh, grow our capital ratio in an environment which requires a little bit of caution and still be in the market buying back some stock. So, uh, that's why it's always good to manage conservatively so you can, uh, you know, have that capital flexibility. Okay, we got a question here from Andrea. This is an interesting question. Uh, there is some concern that banks' reluctance to lend will be a meaningful factor tipping the economy towards a recession. What is your view on this and how does it relate to smaller banks? So that's on, um, 
yeah, reluctance to lend. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a good question. I'd say, you know, banks are tightening uh, their uh, lending standards. They're being a little more cautious uh, on uh, who they lend to and how much they lend. Part of it is linked back to deposits. If, you know, if you're worried that you could have deposit outflows, you don't want to be kind of going long uh, new assets. Uh, and part of it is if you're getting close to a possible recession, then uh, you need to be a little cautionary. So I think it's a number of things that are causing banks to kind of step back and not be as aggressive in their lending. Uh, I do think that tightness on credit uh, acts as a further break on the economy. So the Fed is already raising rates to kind of slow the economy and cool inflation. And if banks are uh, kind of tightening and not as not as much credit uh, in the in the economy, supply to the economy, it does the same thing. And so whether that translates to effectively another 25 basis points or 50 basis points hike. Uh, what the banks are doing is kind of consistent with kind of what the Fed is trying to do and uh, slow down uh, the economy. Slow it down, but hopefully not too bad of a recession. Um, yeah. yeah and, and Stephen, that's, you know, I, I like hopefully uh, it sounds like the Fed is at least on a skip. They're going to skip this next meeting and not have a hike. They might be on a full-time pause, but from where I sit, that seems to make the most sense at this point. They, you know, the monetary policy, the medicine they've been dishing out, it takes a while to have a response. And so to kind of see, uh, is inflation continuing to come down? I think they've done enough that they certainly can take a skip and hopefully even a pause at this point. Okay, so this is a question from David. Uh, how localized are these bank risks in Silicon Valley? The concern is that rising Fed fund rates will cause more investment bank failures. You sort of addressed this point already, but um, can you want to kind of re kind of re-answer that question in terms of like, are we done with this yet? Yeah, um, well, we'll learn more in the second quarter. And I think uh, uh, some of the question on uh, smaller banks is, uh, you know, do they, did they have an interest rate mismatch and have they had to pay up for deposits and is it hitting their profitability? Um, I do think a lot of the smaller banks carry uh, good capital levels, and so uh, I don't think it'll be widespread. But there, there could be a few uh, here and there. But uh, maybe, maybe those can get uh, merged. Uh, so we'll see if there's appetite uh, for for banks to uh, start to pair up a little bit to help help uh, get through this environment. Yeah, I mean, there's like something like three thousand banks in the U.S. and 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 they, and, and 40, some of them fit. Seven hundred, Steve, a little 40, higher. Oh, forty-seven hundred. Okay, and and some of them fail every year. I mean, you know, so it's just you know, it's kind of like the course of action around here, yeah. and to some extent. Um, okay, and the um, we're getting a few questions on commercial real estate. Um, you know, that's I don't really have any specific questions about that, but there is some exposure. Uh, we are seeing office workers come back, but some of them haven't come back. Yeah. Um, you know, do you, is that, can you want to comment on that in terms of just your portfolio at Citizens yeah. Financial or how it, how it might impact the whole banking system? Yeah, sure. So I, I think, uh, you know, banks, uh, have supplied a fair amount of credit, uh, to commercial real estate. There's other CMBS structures and other uh, pension funds and institutional investors who also supply financing to commercial real estate. Uh, and banks tend to try to be diversified across asset categories. So the major categories would be multifamily, 
uh, office, kind of warehouse and distribution and retail. Um, I would say the one that most investors are lock, locking in on is your exposure to office. Given exactly what you said, Steve, it's like the return to office is slow. Rates are higher uh, when uh, borrowers reach a maturity. Today, all their loans are cash flowing because they're still living off the lower interest rates uh, when the, the loans were initiated or they swapped it and they have uh, lower carrying costs. But you know, when the loan comes up to, to extend, uh, what's the situation? What's the real value of the building? Does the borrower have to put in more money, more equity? Is the bank willing to lend again? Uh, and so I think you'll see a couple of charge-off banks uh, face uh, in light of that maturity wall around office. Um, I do think some of the dynamics are getting a little better. You are seeing more take up in uh, uh, kind of overall uh, withdrawals, return to office is picking up a bit, uh, which is positive. Uh, and, you know, if the Fed is really done and then the Fed eventually starts to cut rates, that'll uh, make the rollover of that debt uh, easier. Uh, so, you know, we'll see. But uh, I think we, like other banks, we're going to have losses here in commercial real estate. We put aside a good level of reserves to cover that. Uh, we think those losses will be manageable, but we'll have a lot of people in our workout group busy uh, for the next, you know, four to eight quarters, six to eight quarters. It's going to be uh, busy kind of working through some of that sure sure and um frank has a question here aren't banks receiving a five percent return on reserves at the fed i don't know just completely understand the question but i guess uh banks do keep some of their money with the federal government and how much is the federal government paying yeah there's a requirement to to keep money uh there in, in the kind of uh capital accounts with the fed uh, what they did, uh, what Congress uh, decided to do was to uh, preserve that high level of capital rate of return for the small banks. But any bank that's, I think, over, I don't know what the number of it's 10 or 50 or 100, but any big bank uh, simply gets a, a very low interest rate. And so uh, it's, not a, it's not a big factor because it's not in the, in the size of our balance sheet. It's not that much, but uh, there's a differential there between what they pay for small banks and what they pay for bigger banks. Okay. Well, we're getting, we're starting in to get to the end of the interview. We have a couple more uh, questions here uh, from live listeners. Um, actually, no, we've, yeah, we've got something here from Neil. Uh, Barron's recently did an article about shadow banks, which would include sovereign wealth funds, insurers, and pension funds. Uh, why are they being allowed to make loans typically done by banks? How worried, are you, how worried are you about these companies leading the U.S. into a financial collapse? Now, there are a lot of concerns about shadow banking, but they weren't. Shadow banking was not a, cited as a cause for this latest blow up. But I mean, and but we also have people saying, hey, the more the more regulations we have, the more we're going to push people into unregulated yeah. loans. So how, yeah. what's your what's your take on all this on this situation? Uh, really. Uh, uh, astute question but um you know i would say the the shadow banks is kind of the non-regulated lenders that includes these pe firms the kind of blackstones and apollos and aries in addition to the ones you rattled off like pension plans etc sovereign wealth funds but uh, uh clearly if regulation increases on banks uh, it can have the effect of 
uh, driving, uh, for example, if we have to hold more cash and securities, that means it crowds out our ability to lend. Who's going to do the lending? Some of it will just disappear. And so you could have a credit crunch. The other, it could be these other players who step in uh, and do the loans that, that banks historically had done. We've seen that in certain markets like mortgage. There's non-traditional mortgage companies now are uh, taking Kind of the majority of the mortgage loans in the country are not made by banks. They're made by Rocket and United uh, and all these other mortgage specialists. Uh, and so, you know, corporate loans is still the domain of banks. And there's a growing kind of unregulated bank participation there. Uh, and that could increase over time based on how these regulations play out. So uh, I would say. You know, it, 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 from a public policy standpoint, having more exposure in the regulated banking system is probably safer uh, for the country. Uh, but having said that, these well-run uh, institutions that have uh, like permanent financing, that have really long-term liabilities, for them to make some of these loans, if they have the right people and the right controls, it doesn't necessarily increase systemic risk. So I guess the answer, long-winded answer is, it depends. So it depends how it happens and uh, who the who the new players and entrants are taking some of that market share from the banks over time. Yeah, it is. It is pretty interesting because most people don't realize this. This is going on, you know. And most most of the private, I guess, a lot of the private credit is is in is in corporate lending, and not yeah. as much as consumer. But it, yeah, but are there there are those independent mortgage uh, companies that are coming up. Um, so in terms of like different types of lines of business and their profitability, uh, one of the ones that uh, I guess Citizens is, is exiting um, indirect auto lending. That was an announcement from yesterday. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, auto lending, so can you talk a little bit about that really quickly? And and where are you seeing them? You know, where, where's the where's the good, where, where are the really strong businesses for Citizens? I guess the wealth management is probably one of them. So, so exactly, Steve. And, and I would just say on terms of balance sheet optimization, which we've been after for a while, is, uh, you know, if deposits are more competitive, you want to go back and look at your loan books and determine, uh, are, do, are we optimized? Do we have, are we playing in the right areas? And indirect auto is an area that was kind of a shock absorber for us. We had a lot of deposits and uh, we had a lot of high liquidity. We could stick that money in securities. We could stick it in auto. Uh, it's really, those are really not deep relationship uh, activity. It's basically the customer, customer, the dealer. They're not a customer of citizens. So we've tried to cull out areas where like auto, where we don't have the customer relationship and it's not the greatest risk adjusted return. And let's just start putting those in a rundown and just kind of free up the left side of the balance sheets. So we can make loans in attractive areas like the corporations to, uh, to support leverage buyouts and things and to collect uh, line of credits on the consumer side of citizens pay and moment the day. So uh, that's an effort that's underway that I think is uh, really sound. And, uh, good progress there. I think that the, you pointed out the wealth management. Uh, we've already built up our capital markets business very strong. We're just waiting for market activity to be kicked. We've been working over time to build up our wealth business. Uh, we see huge potential there. Uh, if there are opportunities to uh, go beyond just organic growth of hiring teams and, cap and building out capabilities, we'd also be looking uh, to see if we could do that as well. Okay, well, uh, Bruce, that's all the time we have for today.
Uh, thanks for our, our listeners and our watchers. And thanks again for uh, Bruce Vonson, uh, CEO of Citizens Financial Group. All right, Steve. It's been my pleasure. Great. We hope you listen to our next episode tomorrow. Saren, uh, Sarah Nissan Tarhano, Global Head of Goldman, Goldman Sachs Apex in Private Wealth Management Capital Markets, will speak with Penta senior writer Abby Schultz about how the world's wealthiest families invest based on results from a recent survey of family offices worldwide. Thank you for listening. Stay safe and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.